This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by the Reformed African American Network. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. And I have with me the incomparable Jamar Tisby. Bishop Tisby, how you doing? I'm doing well, man. Trying to come up with a cool tagline like yours. Like, follow me on Twitter at Jamar Tisby. You have been <laughs> warned. On. I don't know. Hey, I'm man, follow cool at your like own risk. That. <laughs> listen, listen. I can't bite off of yours. I'm gonna try to. Nah, find man, you can do that. Hey, look, that's not original. It's not original, y'all. But Jamar, how, how you, you doing today, brother? Oh man, um, you know, if for anybody who's a student out there, you're, you know, you're at the part of the semester where the newness has worn off, and you're just starting to get into the grind of it, just the week in, week mm-hmm. out grind, and it's tiring, man. I'm, I'm, I mean, we're only what like a quarter of the way through. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> where's right. when's the next break? Um, but I gotta say, it's a it's a blessing. I'm enjoying what I'm studying, uh, history. I'm taking classes on Latin American history, urban history, U.S. history, and just some crazy good uh, knowledge out there. So I can't complain, man. Man, you also have a, a long commute too, so you're you're commuting Whew. back and forth, and so. Man, pray for Jamar, guys. Seriously. Seriously <laughs> pray for bro. Jamar because um, just the wear and tear of, of naturally doing doctoral work and then at the same time commuting back and forth and the strain that it can put on you and family and everything. Man, we're just, we're just lifting you up, brother. Well, thank you, man. How about you? What's, what's going on with you? How can we pray? Doing well, man. Um, just, you know, hanging in there and uh, little little minor situations here and there that are just the cares of this life uh, pressing down the reality of a broken and fallen world. And um, we were actually, it's funny, but just to let people in on some insider information, we were supposed to record last night, but I was, I preached yesterday at my church. So I was, my voice, I'm, I'm a, a, you know, a traditional black preacher, so to, so to quote unquote. <laughs> so I wasn't talking in calm tones. So I had to, I had to let my voice rest, man. Yes, definitely, man. I want to hear some of your sermons. I, I imagine uh, with the passion you put into the podcast, I can only imagine what it sounds like in the pulpit. It's a little bit, uh, it's, it's interesting. I'm still growing as a preacher and uh, I don't think you ever stop, but I'm, I'm a young I'm a young guy in the game, so don't judge me. Uh, just provide <laughs> constructive criticism and feedback for sure. <laughs> Word, man. Well, I know it's exhausting. It's like like preaching is a, is a physical mental emotional yes. spiritual workout it is no joke so i know it's rough yeah, getting it was up funny. on monday a couple of years ago we calculated i got my dad something it was a it was like a a special plaque for it was his birthday or um it was some sort of anniversary i forget what it was but it was on his birthday and uh we calculated it was funny we were just sitting around we calculated how many sermons he had preached since he started our church, just since he started our church, which was 24 years ago. And so we were calculating because at one point we were doing three Sunday morning services. And mm. at one point we were doing four services on a Sunday. And mm-hmm. so we were calculating all these sermons. And 
the thousands of sermons that he has preached, it just it just gives me more of a respect um, for those who have, have been in it for a while and have blazed the trail and path for some of us young guys because I can't imagine the exhaustion right. <laughs> that they feel on a daily, weekly basis to to carry the burden and the weight of the pulpit while at the same time pastoring the people because preaching isn't all you do. Amen. You care for the people, you you Weddings, disciple the funerals. people, you let systems run, etc. So, yeah, it's um it's definitely something I'm learning and growing in and uh just pray for us, man. Pray for pray that we would steward that well and that we'd be faithful in that. Tyler, that's a good point and I know we or at least I often are am looking to pastors to to do more especially in this racial justice kind of work, but at the same time and in the same breath I have to give a shout out to all the faithful pastors out there, all the faithful elders because not only is this work difficult, it is thankless. Um a lot of what pastors do uh, never sees the light of day. It's it's private, it's quiet. Um and it's really, really difficult to 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 run that marathon. So shout out to all the faithful mm-hmm. pastors out there. Yes. You really are helping shepherd the flock. Um, God is using you to build his church. And I just, I hope you're encouraged this morning. That's all. Please, yes, please be encouraged. And, uh, you know, it's funny when you preach, and, and I know you've probably had this with lectures and talks that you've given, but when you preach, when you deliver and communicate the gospel in whatever form, there's certain things that matter to you and certain things that don't matter to you. When people come up and say, like when people say, oh, that was good, you don't know what that means. <laughs> so I was just talking to to my family yesterday about what matters, you know, and I think they were really attentive to, to the response that people give to your message at the end. And I thought it was, it was, it was interesting because I'm like, how many times have we asked our pastors, what encourages you at the end of a sermon? You know, right. what encourages you? Yeah, I'm guilty of that, you know, sitting under the word and then not asking what encourages you, you know, how can, how can I uplift you once you've given, you know, virtue has gone out of you? How can we uplift you at the end of it? So just something to think about for the people who are listening or the people who are pastors, we appreciate you as Jamar was saying, then those who are not pastors, but are sitting under good teaching, uh, find ways to encourage your pastor, find ways to lift him up, find ways to just show your concern for him, especially in this time. Because it is requiring, this time is requiring us as ministers of the gospel to be ambidextrous, um, to know mm-hmm. that the times that we live in, yet at the same time, be rooted in the timeless scripture. So keep that in mind as you're moving forward. Listen, we thank you guys so much. Speaking of pastors, for the for the feedback that you have given about Pastor Doug Logan's episode last week. Um, we're encouraged by that. A lot of people are saying that that has helped them and also ignited their passion. Please continue that feedback. We've actually received some really interesting, good um, feedback when it comes to reviews on iTunes. That is one of the ways that you can support Pastor Mike. If you don't have money, if you don't have um, a social media account, you can follow, you can subscribe to us on iTunes and you can rate and review us. Um, I just wanted to read one very quickly. It's the most recent one that we've uh, received. It's from Ellie Cuthin, and she says, as a white female who has only lived in very segregated towns and cities, this podcast has started the process of expanding the community I learned theology in. God is using it to show me more of himself as these brothers and sisters of color see him at work in their lives and in his church. He has used his word in these podcast discussions to continue to teach Reprove, correct, and train me. Thank you for what you do. Thank you, Ellie, for letting us know and encouraging us. There are some others that we'll save for another time. 
Thank you guys for these reviews. Thank you guys for this encouragement. We can't say it enough. We cannot keep going without you. Amen. Thank you all. So unfortunately, this week has been um, yet another difficult, tense week for the course of our nation. Um, It's funny, when we record these podcasts and then within a week, so much can shift in the national discourse and conversation. It's one of the difficulties of, of doing this on a weekly basis is it's hard to figure out what all to cover. There's so many things we could cover. We could really have a podcast um, every other day or every day. And, um, you know, who knows? Maybe that's in the future, Jamar. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> I keep saying we need a dirt. We need a radio show. So we anybody do. out there who's willing to host a daily multi multiple times a week radio show. Tyler and I will find a way to make it work. Yeah, we're we're very open to that. We're very open (laughs) to that, of course. Um, But soberingly, we had a situation that came out um, from Tulsa, Oklahoma, with uh, a man named Terrence Crutcher, um, who was shot and killed by Officer Betty Shelby on September 16th, which was last Saturday. And then the uh, video was subsequently released a couple of days later, um, showing him with his hands up, unarmed, and uh, showing him being tased and shot as well. And then uh, a couple of days later, while we were reeling from the Terrence Crutcher uh, incident and seeing that video become viral, unfortunately, on Charlotte, North Carolina, we had another incident with a man named Keith Lamont Scott, where the family alleges that he had a book and the police say that he had a a gun and drugs. And um, subsequently, in an encounter with police, he was shot and killed. Um, The officer involved there, his name is Brentley Vinson. And interestingly enough, he was a fellow Liberty student. At the same time I was there, I don't think we met or that I knew him, but I know he uh, he did play on the football team. So these incidents have gripped us. And again, they have led to a lot of outrage and social media reaction. Um, Jamar, when you saw these, uh, just briefly, because, I mean, there's really not too much we can say out of, of what we already just said and what we already know. What were your thoughts? What was your reaction? It was... It, it's still painful, and maybe that is um, part of of what's somberly surprising. Uh, unfortunately, even just in the past two years, we've had so many such incidents that you do risk desensitization. You you, you risk cheapening uh, the lives of these men and women because it's on social media and the news, and it becomes a talking point. But I hope I never get used to it. I hope I never get desensitized. I hope it never um, becomes commonplace for me or it doesn't stir emotions from frustration to sadness or anything else. So I felt all those things and I felt distinctly um, alone in a sense, detached, uh, because Mm -hmm. while it was going on, um, I just, I longed for uh, incarnational embodied community with folks and just with different things happening, uh, the week in, week out busyness of it all, I couldn't do that. And then they were back to back to back. You know, you had Tyree King and and, and Terrence Crutcher and Keith yeah, Lamont Scott. King. Cannot forget, cannot um, forget to mention him. So, so it was just blow after blow after blow without any chance to sort of recharge. And it's exhausting. You know what I wanted most of all? I wanted a day off from my regular duties, like a mental health day, seriously, um, which I've taken once before uh, earlier this year. But I mean, seriously, these things affect individuals so much that that we ought to feel 
um, emboldened to take time we need to really heal emotionally and mentally. Right. Yeah, and I think it, it, it leads to this sense of because of how ordinary it's seemingly ordinary both of those situations were prior to police interaction. It, it just seems to lend itself to a sense of, of despair or dread or fear that, hey, if I if I get my car breaks down or if I get a flat tire, oh, bro. You, know, you know what I'm saying? So it's just yes. all these things that naturally play in. And I think the normalcy is what makes it so harrowing is that there were normal encounters. Um, And a lot of times these things don't always happen with the presence of criminal activity or explicitly or implicitly, but that they just happen um, due to misunderstanding and fear and the escalation of a situation. So in in that, I think you're so right in preserving mental health. Now let's transition because you you talked about this in in a, a tweet and it was actually a string of tweets where you gave your 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 thirteen part theses, uh, <laughs> the thirteen theses of Jamar Tisby, as we talked about earlier. Um, he said it's better than ninety five, but the truth is maybe we need ninety five. But on Twitter, I think thirteen is is about as, as long as you can go. But um, but you talked about how this is no no longer just a civil rights moment, but you truly believe it's a civil rights movement now. Can you talk a little bit more about that distinction? What when did it become a movement versus just becoming a moment? Um, there are a couple ways I can talk about that. One is for me personally, I've been pondering that question for several years now. Uh, first, really in the context of the Black and Reformed movement, um, I'd say mm-hmm. since about 2006 or so, coinciding with a new wave of Christian hip hop. Uh, that be, that traditional reform teachings in their sort of codified written form have become popularized uh, within the African, a small segment of the African-American community. And so as I gathered with other like-minded reformed black folks, you know, there was always this conversation, are we in the midst of a movement? Is this going to spread? How big is this going to be? So that was, that was, that was when I first started thinking about the question, but then in terms of civil rights and racial justice, I really started to have that question, uh, I would say, about 2012 with the death of Trayvon Martin, uh, mm-hmm. which that in in our era of social media, I think, had a different impact than many similar incidents that have been constantly occurring. So that's the other level that you can talk about this is in terms of the, the racial justice movement. And people talk about in, in historian circles, the long civil rights movement. And it's right. the idea that, you know, you can't just look at like a period from, say, 1955 to 1964 or 68 and call that the civil rights movement. The reality is um, ever since Africans were brought here um, as enslaved persons, there has been a civil rights movement, a movement for justice and freedom and liberty. Yes. However, I would say that there are certain moments in our nation's history where it's become a sustain there there's been sustained attention and action in a very public way and for me i don't think there's a particular line you can draw okay you know incident number 15 we are now in a movement uh, i don't i don't think it works that way honestly for me it became a movement when i realized that these incidents were ongoing 
and I could either treat them as just sort of uh, moments that caught my attention briefly, or I could really commit myself to this work and realize that the changes that we all hope to see are going to be a long time in coming. And it's that switch from sprint to marathon, from momentary attention to sustained energy that I think makes it a movement. Right. And, and I think, you know, even in one of your tweets, you specifically said um, in, in number three of this of this string and series, but but the marathon, not a sprint nature of justice means that our typical tropes about racial reconciliation and unity have been exhausted. And I thought that was such a great point for moving forward. We need authenticity with who we engage with and how we engage with them. Has this shifted your philosophy and your approach overall to justice and reconciliation? Um, has this changed the way that you're walking this out practically? Has this shifted your approach? Or is it pretty much the same thing? You're just pulling back or ramping up a little bit more? I'd say there's some, there's definitely some changes that this um, civil rights, 21st century civil rights movement has brought with me. One, I think Christian folks have certain talking points when it comes to race. Um, I think we can point to particular verses in the Bible that would support the idea that all people are created equal, worthy of dignity, um, the church should be integrated. I think we have those talking points. And that's what I mean about typical tropes. I don't think those are tropes because they're biblical, but they become tropes when that's all that we refer to when it comes to racial right. justice. Right. And, and what I, what I've seen is that there are lots of people who I trust theologically who really don't get beyond those initial statements. And for me, it, it's, it's moving beyond the point of just saying in principle and in theory, what should be or what could be, but actually discerning critically ways to get involved practically that will bring about the reconciliation and the justice that we hope for. How about for you? Is it well, well absolutely. I think I think the expansion of the conversation surrounding, you know, racial reconciliation has motivated me and pushed me in a different direction than I was, you know, pre Ferguson or post Ferguson. Yep. And I think post Ferguson, I think what we've understood, we we've all We've all kind of latched on to this typical idea that love is, you know, that which will bring us together. Love is the is the thing that we need. And I think that's always been intrinsic to the reconciliation conversation. But what hasn't been intrinsic to that conversation is justice. And so when we're talking about justice, um, you even said in your tweets, you know, it is at this point when when we recognize this fight isn't going to um, end anytime soon that our real beliefs about racial justice emerge. Now, that's a different different situation. Everyone would say we should love our neighbor, but how we love our neighbor is the implication now. How yes. we love our neighbor is is, is the focus. Yes. And, and loving our neighbor includes just treatment, includes equity. It includes us treating our neighbor with the same sense of dignity and worth that that you know, we treat other people with, or we would want ourselves to be treated with. And so the justice push has, has really been the fault line for me. Huh. When we talk about racial issues, people don't 
object automatically. But when you talk about racial justice, people strongly object um, mm. because that implies something. That implies, you know, what they believe or, or what I think they perceive is their own racial oppression or their own oppression. If I give you dignity, that means I, I take away dignity from myself, um, mm. which is the, the fault in this conversation, which is the problem in this conversation. But but definitely my approach has shifted now from more of a, a individual convincing in reconciliation to a corporate justice push. How do we mobilize concerned Christians who care about the totality of the scriptures, the holistic message of the gospel and what God has placed emphasis on in the dignity of man? How do we mobilize Christians to push for justice on a mass scale or a micro scale in their own uh, communities? I think that's been more of my push now and these situations have only just just moved me more thoroughly towards that. Yeah, man, I'm glad you mentioned that. Okay, so so here's what it is for me. It, it you know the moment became a movement when I realized that this problem isn't going away. That these are I, I mean I always knew that these weren't isolated incidents, but then I realized that I have a personal responsibility to dismantle the systems, the the ideologies the strongholds that make yes. these things possible. Um, and that's, that goes on all levels, right? That's, that's ecclesiastical. That's my own personal holiness and piety. That's also systemic and structural and public. One of the books that has really changed my perspective on racial history and racial justice is a book called Local People by John Dittmer. This is written, uh, I think, 94 or so around there. And, and he really details the, the history of um, civil rights and racial justice in Mississippi in particular. But what his point is, is that even though we look at you know, big figures like Martin Luther King and, and Ralph Abernathy and the NAACP as organizations, what what the civil rights movement was really about was lots of local people working in their own communities for justice that every yes. now and again would attract national attention. And then these big figures, big organizations would come and support. But never – what it taught me was never underestimate the power of just working where you are diligently, intelligently, persistently, faithfully where you are. And so I just want to I throw that out there for anybody who's listening because it's not like you have to get on the news or be in some big – you know, event or whatever, there are lots of coalitions of the willing, people who are concerned about racial justice right where you are, and getting involved in those, whatever it looks like, whatever it is, can be your part. Um, and, and as we all do that, yes. it makes a difference. And I'll say this, you know, I'm so glad you brought up the local people angle. Listen, guys, um, there are times where we are going to have to convince people in public and on social media. And then there are times where we just need to leave Come that on, alone. Um, you know, I, I've, I've been more convinced. And again, if someone, it's not to say we don't call out outright bigotry. And it's not to say that if someone comes on your wall, like that's always been my rule. You know, 95% of the time, if someone comes onto my status um, or onto my wall and they says something and they, and they say something to me or, or they say something that resembles um, bigotry in, in a casual way or in an explicit way, well, then I'm going to I'm going to to respond to that for sure, um, especially because that says something about what I'm willing to respond to. 
and what I'm moved by. I mean, just recently, the night of the Terrence Crutcher uh, video release, you know, I talked about how, you know, one of the one of the, the pivotal moments in, in that recording was a helicopter video, which was actually Officer Betty Shelby's husband um, up in the in, in the helicopter and observing Terrence Crutcher saying that looks like a bad True. dude. And and it was um, it crushed me, yeah. man. It just, you know, beyond the shooting, because I was prepared for the shooting, I was prepared to see someone die. But but that crushed me. And when I talked about how uh, on my Facebook status, we're not bad dudes. Very simply, we are not bad dudes simply because of a list and host of man, things. Yes. You know, we're complex, we're flawed, but but we are free. Free. We're not bad dudes simply because we make you uncomfortable or because you have judged that something we do is is inferior. Um, you know, there was a guy who came on and, and I'm not even, <laughs> you know, afraid to say, I'm not even afraid to say, and you, you might not know this, Jamar, but he's a local pastor. He's a pastor in my city. Wow. Um, Bro, I read that thread and I was about to text you. <laughs> I'm like, how do you do it? How do you keep calm in the face of such like aggressive ignorance? But go on, go on. Well, well it's interesting for those of you who don't know, you can obviously just go to my status and you can you can find it for whatever reason. Um, even after he apologized for what I'm about to say, the, the, the comments were left up. So I don't know. For me, I would just want to take all those comments down um, if I said what I'm about to say. But he compared um, young black men. At first, he said he said my post was senseless. But then he compared young black men to Nazi Lord. skinheads. Um and so there's a whole bunch that we could get into. And it's funny that you mentioned that, Jamar, because at the time when the when I was writing the comments, when, I, when we were having this this online social media conversation, I was not upset. Like I was stunned and confused, not really surprised, mm-hmm. but not upset. Um, now, after a day later, because he wasn't the only one who pushed back um, in a semi disrespectful way. But a day later, I reread the comments and then I got mad. <laughs> but by that time, the conversation was over, right? And it was funny. I was, telling, I was telling people around me that. I said, man, you know, when these things happen, I don't typically get upset. But as I go back and, re- and reread them, I get upset, I think, because of the, the disrespect or, or what have you. But you know what it moved me to, man? Listen, some people are just not worth it. Some people are not worth having the conversation with. I remember a couple of years ago when we were at TGC and we had the RAN uh, breakout for the lunch and Pastor Thabiti uh, Anyabwile, and I encourage you guys to go listen to this talk. He talked about the worth of these conversations, like the people who actually want to have these conversations. Yeah. And it was prophetic because at that time we thought it was as, as tough as it could get. We thought it was at a fever pitch and that was 2015. We had no idea what 2016 uh, would bring. 2016 needs to we go had somewhere. Absolutely. Listen. We had no idea what 2016 would bring. And I think it, it moved me to this, this idea and this mentality that, yes, sometimes you will have to stand up to people. And then there are other times where there are going to be people who say racist things or bigoted things on your timeline. And you pray for them, but you expend energy with the people who are willing to Amen. listen and with the influence that you can directly yeah. have. Like There are some people on my timeline who are in in Kansas or in Montana or in New York or wherever, and we will never be able to have a face-to-face conversation. We will never be able to build past one thread argument. So it's not worth it for me to expend energy 
and become agitated and to become angry and upset at that person on that one thread. It's actually a bad stewardship of my resources. Absolutely. I'm actually being a bad yes. steward of my mental yep. health. So I, what I've seen is that a lot of people are engaging in these uh, arguments and praise it. God for the convincing. <laughs> praise God for the convincing. Praise God for the ideas. And there's room and space for that. Don't don't hear me saying don't do that. What I am saying is as a movement, if we're going to last beyond two years, <laughs> that's a two year strategy. If we're going to last 10, 15 years, we may need to pull back from trying to convince people because they've revealed who they are. If If, if people are not going to call something evil when they see an unarmed man killed uh, by police and, and that situation escalated. It's nothing I'm going to say that's going to convince you that that's that, you know, that you are uh, wrong in that area. It's going to take a work of the Holy Spirit. So anyway, I was just thinking about that, man. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up this marathon idea because I feel like we and myself included, I am definitely chief center number one in this area just been a bad steward about how how we expel energy in this movement and forgetting that the greatest influence we'll have is local. It's not really even social media. The greatest influence we'll have is our local community. And I've I've definitely been very selective about I mean, you you'll you look at my timeline very, 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 very few times will I ever even respond um, to questions on social media. Uh, basically, because most of the people who want to get into a debate online really aren't looking to be convinced. They're looking to make their own point, And that's the end of the story. And you'll never, right. ever, ever actually win them to your way of thinking. They'll just go, they'll just drag you down to a rabbit hole. Um, I also don't have time. So like you're saying, it's, it's, it's a bad stewardship well, exactly. of our resources. But my rule of thumb is basically... If, if I have a personal relationship with you, like we're actually not just friends on Facebook, but we go to church together or, you know, we work together, somehow our paths have crossed in person, I might engage, but I typically wouldn't do it in the most public of forums, depending on the question. You know, I might follow up with a direct message or something like that. Um, otherwise, if it's a complete stranger who, you know, we just happen to interact on social media, I don't go there. It's just, it's not going to be fruitful for either of us. Um, and right. like you're saying, there are people there. Also, I'll also say this. It gets extremely frustrating uh, as a black Christian to constantly try to tell white Christians and, and persuade and convince. And they may not even be you know, malicious or trying to agitate, but just so steeped in their own kind of experience of whiteness that it's that's not our job doc it's it's not not our job it's not not our job with everyone but i do make exceptions and the exceptions i make are these typically i was just thinking about this today if a church has invited me out to come preach or teach there Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. if they've gone to that effort if they've trusted me to you know present my perspective and everything like that i will i will continue a relationship in that case. Now, it's not just any random church that reaches out, but if if somebody has has made that personal connection with me, has has brought me to their congregation, let me preach in their pulpit or teach in in Sunday school or whatever, I'm willing at least to have a conversation. Now, if it becomes apparent, you know, it ain't going anywhere, I'll just say thanks (laughs) and, and keep moving. But I do think 
it's important for black Christians to realize that we can't just have a blanket policy of if you don't get it, if you're not woke or if you don't agree, I'm not dealing with you. Right. No, absolutely. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And I think, you know, another thing for me is because I'm, I'm in the ministry pastors, it's a, it's personal to my heart. If a pastor says something or if we, because we exert the most influence um, in our local communities, in our local ecclesiology, so that, that, that group of people are typically, and it's funny, those are typically the people who will, or people in ministry will respond the most harshly towards <laughs> me, which is, is interesting. But, and, and so, but, but I think even in that case, you know, for me, there have been times where pastors and I have taken it offline and we've said, okay, well, let's, let's sit down, let's have dinner, let's pray together, let's have lunch. And then even in those environments, you know, some people say, oh, I would just get off Facebook and just go and meet people for coffee. Okay. If you don't think that you're still going to get addressed or somebody's still going to get um, uh, confront you with bigoted thoughts, trust me when I say <laughs> the craziest stuff I've had said to me in person was from pastors. Oof. So even the people in there, I had to gauge, OK, well, do I want to keep meeting with this person or does this person really not is not really concerned with progressing in this conversation? Like, are they actually concerned about this, or is it a situation where they they just want to to check me and correct mm. me? Mm. Um, sometimes we'll keep going, and then other times, but because again, here's the thing: a lot of people say, a lot of people address, and I'm getting very honest here, but you know, I think you guys can handle it. But a lot of people address their black brothers and sisters from a place of equality or inferiority, but never superiority. So what they'll say is, oh, I love my black brothers and sisters. I love the black brothers and sisters in my church. I love the the black men that I mentor, black women that I mentor. But can you learn something from us? Mm. Like, can we teach you in any way? And if we can't teach you in any way, well, then reconciliation hasn't happened because we're, we're really just, we have an inverted relationship and it's never going to grow past you being equal with me or superior to me, but I can't ever be superior to you in any area. Well, then, you know, here we go. You know, and it's not it's not about the superiority. Right. It's about the, the shared perspective yeah. of true reconciliation, which is that we are brothers and sisters and we can all learn something from each other. But if 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 you don't admit that or if your actions prove that you don't admit that, well, then, you know, <laughs> what am I going to convince you on? If you're been on not and hearing, I, th- I think I'm so glad you brought that up. I think that's where racial justice and racial reconciliation in the church stalls. And by church, I mean predominantly white evangelical church. Um, yes. If you don't humble yourself, here's a re- here's a reality that I see. Come on, Doc. That, that theologically, minorities and and in particular in terms of racial issues, African Americans have much more theological firepower to deal with our present moment because we have been dealing with this moment for hundreds of years. If predominantly white churches don't recognize that and can't take a posture of listening and learning, and and, and not just, oh, I'll hear you politely, but actually making changes, treating the people who are who are saying these things as as equals, um, as teachers, then we'll never see the kind of yes. progress that we hope to see in the church. And and to be specific, right? Like there's there are a million ways to be specific. And we can have pastors on here and Tyler, I'm sure you can you can speak into this as as a pastor in the church. But 
we can't keep having these kind of dialogues. And boy, there's another thing. Remind me to talk about these dialogues. Please talk about dialogue. Talk about we, that. We, we can't keep having these these dialogues and then saying, you know, nodding our heads and saying, well, that was a nice perspective and going back to doing business as usual. And I think a lot of that is a result of fear. Pastors and predominantly white churches have congregation members who they know will make a stink if they take a strong stand for racial reconciliation and racial justice. And, you know, in the name of sort of preserving the unity of the church or not rocking the boat too much, they'll back off. That's that's just it's never gonna work. It's never gonna work. To to take a stance right. for the gospel is always gonna be disruptive. And it may even be disruptive in the church if what we've been doing has been sinful all along. So that's one thing. Right. But here's the dialogue. It may not be going where you think, Tyler, so I'll, I'll be glad to hear you weigh in on the dialogue. Um, yeah, I want on. us, because we're in the midst of a moment, not a movement, there's there's an eagerness. I think what, what, what we have found is that, or I have found, that white evangelicals, by and large, are open to having this conversation in a way that they weren't before. Um, I think the sustained attention to racial issues at least means for white folks, okay, this is important and we should talk about it. That's a good thing. Problem is, a lot of folks think that just because someone is black, that their opinion is informed, effective, and helpful. And it ain't. Oh, man. Now, oh, man. There's, oh. there's a lot of black folks who can give you those kind of superficial statements about racial equality and whatnot that we were talking about earlier in the podcast. But there aren't as many. There's still enough. <laughs> you can find them. So there's no excuse. But there aren't as many who have actually done research, who have been critical about this issue, who can come with good things yes, to say. Yes. And, and I just want to caution folks, black folks and white folks, but, but definitely white folks, pastors, church leaders, whomever, if you're trying to get a panel together or something, don't just get somebody because they're in a particular office and they're black or just because they're black. Man, I'm telling you, black folks, black Christians are doing a lot of harm to the racial justice movement because they think that just because they've experienced America as a black person, that that qualifies them to talk on any and every man. racial issue. It doesn't. It doesn't. Man, man, Jamar, Jamar, Jamar. Wow. I mean, have you done work in yes. this area? Have you done work? Have you studied this area? Um, have you put in time? What books have you read? What perspectives are you regularly listening to? Um, that's, that's huge, right. man. That's massive. I completely agree. I think, you know, especially in our reform circles, it is um, it is very, it is undeniable that part of what we have imbibed and part of what we take in is kind of this cultural myopia where we just look at things through a Euro lens because all we read are Euro scholars. All we read are certain people who um, didn't have even a proper view of our dignity. And that doesn't mean we don't ever read them. And that doesn't mean we don't ever say they had some good things to say um, or learn from them. But what it does mean is that we're, we're, we're seeing things through such a, a skewed lens because the weight that the reform world puts on theology comes from Euro perspective. Um, even as I was talking about last week, I mean, do we have something to contribute to this conversation? You know, and, and I think when you see black people not contributing to these conversations, it's easy for us, even as black reform people or non-reform people, uh, because it exists in those circles as well. 
it's very easy for us to have a skewed view of culture, a skewed view of what is gospel and what is social gospel, what is not gospel. And so all those things play into not just, hey, I'm black and, and so I can say something about this. It also plays into the fact that I have to do study. Yes. I have to do work. I have to unlearn some tendencies that are natural. Yes. Like when you take the implicit bias, bias test that you challenge, I took the implicit bias test a couple of weeks ago. Um, the Harvard implicit bias test. I took the implicit bias test and they said I had an implicit bias against African-Americans. <laughs> I'm, <telling laughs> I'm sitting back like, what do you mean? Like I do, I do justice work. What are you talking about? But it was, it was so ingrained in my yes, psyche yes. to view people of color as bad, <laughs> as, as intrinsically criminal, as bad dudes, yeah. um, a bad lady. So it's, it's just intrinsic within us. So we have to, Take a step back and say, is this person really coming from a place of authority or are they just black? And so we feel like we put them on a panel. Yes. And, and so, here's the thing. So much more to say about. <laughs> yeah, that, we man. got we got at least one more thing. We, we got to talk about the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. But the, the last thing I'll say on that on that deal is as a litmus test, you know, just a, a, a you know, not a formal whatever, whatever. But if the the white folks in your community congregation whatever who generally are skeptical or opposed to r racial justice efforts that could be black lives matter that could be anything that's going on if those folks can walk away from a conversation about race and still be comfortable you probably need to go back and review the content and the panelists um hmm. my point in saying that is if the people who are comfortable not doing much, or maybe they just leave it at, as lip service, lip service, if they can still walk away feeling that, um, we haven't challenged them. And, and I see that happening in writing. I see that happening in racial reconciliation dialogues. I see that happening with sermons. Um, if we haven't challenged the very people who need the most need challenge need to be challenged the most, then we shouldn't be patting ourselves on the back for having mentioned the word race or reconciliation or whatever. So, yeah, hmm. that's good, Jamar. Man, a lot more to say about that. Um, man, we need to have somebody on to talk about that. <laughs> we need to have somebody on to to kind of break break down this uh, this tendency, even in our our small circle, our micro circle. Um, to elevate and to, to fail to do history work. Um, the last thing I'll say before we move on to talk about the National Museum, um, please register to vote, guys. Um, voting deadlines are coming up. The election is November 7th or November 8th, I believe, um, the first Tuesday in November. Please register to vote. Um, I saw somebody come up with a deadline uh, on my timeline for us locally. Please register to vote. This is very important. It's more than just Trump versus Hillary. Um, there are a lot of uh, elections and races that will dictate some of the things that are put forward from a justice platform. Educate yourself and register to vote if you are able. Yeah, that's that's yeah. a whole other podcast because um, some people, yeah. some people don't want to vote. So anyway, listen, listen, guys. Anyway, um, please vote. Please just just do that. Do that for me. OK, so something something great happened uh, before we close out the podcast the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Um, it's grand opening. Happened last week. And a lot of people, I've been, I, you know, it's funny. I've actually been dodging um, pictures and video of this because I kind of want to go in a little surprised. Uh, but what I have heard is that there's six levels. 
there's levels to this. Um, there's 37,000 objects of history, of, of African-American history from our perspective. It's cost over $500 million uh, wow. to build. Um, and so the ceremony for the grand opening was filled with a lot of notable names, John Lewis, uh, former President George W. Bush, and then also our current president, our President Obama. And man, I, I don't I don't know. I think it was uh, appropriately timed. Uh, I know they had been talking about this date for a while, so they couldn't have known what would have happened in our culture. But man, what a, what a special what a special museum, what a special um, just inspiration for us as black Americans to be able to have something from our perspective. And I know there's probably things about it that are imperfect. There are probably things about it that we would change. But regardless of that, the presence of that with 37,000 objects of history um, from things to from Harriet Tubman all the way up to, to President Obama. Um, how encouraging is that, man? I, I just it lifted my spirits and it encouraged me. Um, when I when I heard about it and when I heard about the stories of people who had walked in and seen some things that they had donated or that seemed to have seen some things that belong to them, their contributions to black history. And so I'm looking forward to going, man. man. I'm telling you, was, there were a couple of people uh, who we know, Thabiti, Anya Bwile, Akemini Uwan, a few others who were actually at the opening. And I basically said, I, I can't talk to you anymore. I'm too jealous. Um, exactly. <laughs> listen, listen, we're not woke enough. Y'all hear me? We're not woke enough. Man, that was... But the BB and the Kennedy, that they That was woke. cruel. They that woke. was cruel. They didn't even invite a brother, uh, <laughs> give me some tickets, anything. But yeah, it, you know, it's illustrative, I think, of the paradox that is America. You know, at, at the same time that we have back to back to back killings of african-americans through law enforcement and and while we're yeah. weeping yeah. and grieving and frustrated over the repeated incidents of this nature we also have the nation's first black president giving a speech about the national museum of african-american history and culture which is on the mall man. you know they didn't put this off the block somewhere and as a historian you know a history guy i love it because if you know history is prologue um it's not that history repeats itself there's all kinds of contingencies that make the situation we're now different from even similar situations in the past however it is context and as bible people uh we definitely understand the importance of context because we don't want nobody ripping bible verses out of context uh, in a similar manner, Come we don't now. want anyone ripping um, events or or um, individuals or anything that's happening right now out of their historical context. So hopefully this museum helps us to view that context a little more easily and uh, poignantly. So I cannot wait to get there. Anybody who can help me get there, let me know. <laughs> I'll come cook <laughs> for you. I'll uh, Look, you know, man, preach we'll do whatever. whatever. We'll do whatever, man. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I think um, I think my wife and I are planning to go in November. So okay, um, we're gonna. But but it's gonna be. It's weird. Like we some things have to just fall right because we're we're gonna be on a trip, and so we're like, hey, how can we? You know, we're we're kind of in close proximity to that. So let's try to stay over, buy one way ticket back. It's just a whole bunch of things that have to go right, and then we have to get the tickets because. As you know, the advanced time passes are sold out till oh I think January. Goodness. So they they offer a, a limited number of 
uh, in-person timed passes that you can get as oh, soon wow. as it opens in the morning. So <laughs> we're going to probably have to it's wait like outside for a while. In the <laughs> <laughs> All right. But listen, we're going to wait till we get in, man. We're going to wait till we get in because this Absolutely. is too important. We need to do like a pass the mic uh, trip to the museum in the spring or something next summer or something like that. Man, that would be crazy. That would be crazy. I'll definitely make that one, man. I've been slacking on my <laughs> passing mic family. So I definitely, I told somebody, I said, I'm going to be, I'm going to be uh, one of those parents whenever I take my kids to this, that makes them memorize everything. Oh, nice. You have to memorize everything. <laughs> Yeah, good, good luck with that. Good Food luck is good. That. Okay, I don't <laughs> That's good, man. Great job, bro. Thank well, you. Well, thank you for this. Thank you guys for tuning in. Um, we, we really appreciate you guys. Uh, again, you can follow us on Twitter at underscore Pass the Mic. I am at Burns23. Jamar is at Jamar Tisby. Follow at your own risk, of course. Um, continue to give us feedback. Uh, rate, review us on iTunes. You can also subscribe to us on Satchel, the Satchel app, which is the only way I listen to podcasts. So it's the only way you should listen to podcasts as well. Um, our very own producer, Bo York, um, he is the one who started that. So it's a great app, high functionality, and we really appreciate you guys for downloading that. Um, you can also follow us, Rand Network. Um, at Rand Network is our, our Twitter handle, randnetwork.org. Amazing articles are coming out. I just can't. We don't have time to go through all the articles. Amazing pieces of work are coming out. If you have a writing gift, if you have yes. some sort of writing talent, something to say, Submit to Rand Network. We need more perspectives. We need more people. Um, shout out to the staff um, that is doing a, just a great job of, of pushing those conversations forward. Um, and again, guys, we, we earnestly, we desire your feedback. And one of the best ways you can do that is go into the Pass the Mic private Facebook group. Almost a thousand Ooh. members. We close. I checked today. Almost a thousand members in a very short period of time. People from all over the country, multi-ethnic, multi-denominational, multi-generational, pursuing justice and reconciliation from various perspectives, not all reform, not all African-American. Trust me, you want to be in the private Pastor Mike Facebook group. And it's also a safe place for you to vent constructively. Okay, so if you constructively, there are a lot of people who constructively vent in there and receive encouragement, inspiration. We get on some Google Hangouts. We talk some things out. It's great. Go to Pass the Mic on Facebook. Join the group. Jamar, anything else? You hit it all, my brother. Thank you so much. Appreciate you guys for listening. We'll see you soon on Pass the next the mic. Pass the Mic. You've been listening to Pass the Mic, a Pottery production. To find out more about this and other shows, visit Pottery.com. That's P-O-D-A-S-T-E-R-Y.com. This episode is brought to you in part by Ministry Pivot with Russell St. Bernard. This podcast features important conversations with industry leaders such as Nona Jones, Bishop Walter Scott Thomas, Reverend Dr. Nicole Martin, and so many more. Visit ministrypivot.com or on all streaming platforms.